Welcome to the Truth Exchange podcast, a unique program where we have conversations about worldview all through the lens of oneism and twoism. This lens is based on Romans 1.25. We've exchanged the truth of God for the lie, worship and serve creation rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. I'm your host, Joshua Gilo, and today I have a special guest with me. His name is John Harris. He grew up as the son of a pastor in upstate New York. He became a Christian at a young age and led Bible studies in college and music ministry in church. John has an MDiv from Southern or Southeastern Seminary and an MA in History from the Liberty University. He enjoys outdoor sports, including fishing, hiking, cycling, and skiing. He's a member of the Catskill 3500 Club and enjoys getting outside every chance he has. His latest book, Social Justice, Goes to Church, The New Left in Modern American Evangelicalism, is available on Amazon.com. John, welcome to the program. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate it. John, I'm curious about your um, your your conversion experience. You in your 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 bio, your short bio, it, it says that you're the son of a of a pastor. What church? What type of denomination did you grow up in? Well, you know, we were in a Bible church in a fairly secular area, and so when people would ask me that question, I would say, "Well, we're basically Baptists, uh, except cooler because we're you know a Bible church." So. Um, pretty pretty similar to like a southern baptist theology i would say uh my dad's a graduate of the master seminary out in sun valley california he was uh, a deacon at grace community church for years and so um kind of similar theology to i would say john MacArthur's theology that's kind of what i grew up in it was i would say more fundamentalist um with the, the cultural um things that fundamentalist means when i was young and it kind of more transitioned into more of an evangelical um, feel, but the theology was always the same. Um, a little more reformed, I would say. Uh, definitely, you know, Bible-based. And uh, I got saved at six years old. I was young, so that that actually created a crisis of faith, like it does for a lot of kids who grow up in that. In my teens, I wondered, was I really saved when I prayed the prayer, quote unquote, when I was six, and. Um, I, I came to the conclusion, I was probably 13 or 14, that the prayer wasn't what saved me. It was Christ that saved me. And, you know, the timing of it and when it happened wasn't the, the point. But the, the point was that I, I was saved now. And, and so that's when I came to more of a full assurance. Uh, I got involved with ministry in my late teens at uh, community college was really my first real, um, I guess, experience leading Bible studies and that kind of thing. Uh, and then I've been on several other campuses since then doing a lot of evangelism and, and of course apologetics comes with that if you're on a college campus and um, discipleship and uh, music ministry and uh, went to seminary so I could know the word of God better and um, then uh, got a, a degree in history. So I, um, that, that was for a more of a tent making job. I wanted to be able to work in, in the secular world while, while doing ministry because in New York to go back up there, it's very secular hard, hard to just, you know, start a church and make that a living unless you're funded. So, um, uh, and, and I'm, I'm actually, I just graduated last semester with my MA in history from Liberty and we're just kind of brain about the next step. So that's me in a nutshell. What, what years were you doing your BA in? Uh, my, my bachelor's, uh, let's see, when did I graduate with my bachelor's? I, I was kind of non-traditional, um, cause I, I strung it out over a few years. I think it was 2000 in, I want to say 11, 10, 10, okay. 2010 when I got my bachelor's. Yeah. Okay. What was the, um, what was the, 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 the cultural landscape then of doing apologetics? What was that like? Well, 
when I first started doing that, which was now 12 or 13 years ago, I guess, at community college, uh, the new atheists were very popular. And so a lot of the apologetics was tailored for answering new atheism. And I got um, very into that. I, in fact, we had a moderated debate at one of the campuses that I eventually worked on. Um, uh, I, it was the Atheist Club and our club. And we had a philosophy professor moderate it. We had a couple hundred people show up. It was really exciting. Mm. I think it's on YouTube. Um, we did another event with them about abortion. I think things have changed. I actually noticed a switch. Um, I think at the t we were at the tail end of kind of the, if you want to call them modernist objections, I guess you could call them that, but objections like, well, the Bible has so many contradictions in it, or um, how can you really believe in Noah's Ark, those kinds of things. And I, I saw that change when I started to get into apologetics and evangelism on college, and it started to be more moral objections. So how can you believe in a Bible that subjugates women and people have used it to burn witches? And what about the Crusades? And what about slavery? And what about, you know, the, all those kinds of questions. So, um, so I got to see that. And I, I would say today, it's probably more the moral objections. You probably hardly hear objections from modernists. But, uh, but yeah, when I first started out, it was more the, the new atheism. Mm -hmm. It shifted and it, of, uh, it, it, it became more of a spiritual focus versus a materialistic um and as you said modernist issues yeah less scientific objections honestly you don't have yeah. to deal with science as quite as much as you used to mm. uh you are going to be involved with us in tw well now but but in 2021 we have a upcoming an online symposium and dr jones has framed this symposium this way with a question he says how should christians articulate the deep truths of the gospel in today's caustic and hostile culture like never before, we are facing massive divisions within the culture and within the church. We're divided over how churches and beyond that, businesses, schools should function during COVID-19. We're divided over how Christians should vote. We're divided to some extent over identity and sexuality. We're divided over issues of race and social justice. The divisions threaten the charity and unity we knew in the past, which now provokes serious disunity even expressions of sin. Such divisions go deep and threaten the state of our biblical orthodoxy for years to come. John, the subject that you're going to be tackling is the issue of spirituality. And in your work with apologetics, you have a, you have a, a what appears to me at least, a, a very um, booming social media presence doing apologetic work um, on YouTube, Facebook, and on Twitter. What is your sense of what is happening happening theologically, but overall in general, spiritually in the culture? If you could kind of paint that picture for us. Yeah, we're going into a false pagan religion, I think, quick. And it's unrecognized to most Christians because we think it we, we think in terms of politics and religion being so separate. And so if something comes to us as a political movement, we automatically put that in a different category. But um, honestly, I think what we're witnessing right now is a political religion. It's a religion that has um, certain facets to it that mirror the Christian message and the Christian gospel, but, uh, but they don't give the same uh, hope and grace and solutions that Christianity gives. There is no forgiveness in the social justice religion. So uh, a couple parallels for you would be, um, you know, we have a born again experience in Christianity and that's what we call it being born again. And 
social justice, there's kind of the sense of getting woke or being awakened to the disparities around you. Uh, and it's, it's, it's kind of like a born again experience. Um, then once you're activated, you're born again, then it's your job to participate in certain sacraments. So you, that could be voting Democrat, but it's checking your privilege to be involved in redistribution schemes, um, to make sure that you are silent if you're a majority culture, quote unquote, when it comes to issues of justice and you're listening. And so um, we have certain things that we're supposed to do. Uh, and then there are, there's, you become basically part of a church almost because you have your own saints, which are victims of like police shootings. Uh, we put them on a super high pedestal. We have holy books that are sociology books. Um, we have kind of our own utopia, which we call equity, uh, inclusion, diversity. We're going to eventually get there someday. You know, that's, that's the eschatology of this religion. And the problem is if you, especially if you're like a white male, like I am, uh, you, there is no way to actually gain forgiveness for that stain of original sin you have. Uh, so you're, you're automatically an oppressor. It doesn't really matter what you've said, what you've done, or, or even if you've changed your opinion on something. Um, you, you will forever be marked and uh, you have to prove yourself constantly to, to the priests, to, to the, the woke leaders. And so um, there's, there's other parallels as well. But what I see happening is this kind of thinking has encroached in the church and it's created a situation where you have even prominent seminaries that in their hermeneutics, they're teaching standpoint epistemology. Um, you have social justice efforts on campus and these are being called biblical and we're, we're using Bible verses to try to justify them, but it's an eisegetical move. We're, we're going to the Bible to justify something that's already a, a Marxist concept. We're getting our morality from, from an alien uh, outside force, not, not from the Bible itself. So that, that's what I'm seeing happening. I think we're in transition. Some places are farther along than others as far as accepting this ideology. But as Christians, we need to understand it, recognize it. It's very subversive, so it's hard sometimes, but we got to do the hard work of uh, being an approved workman and understanding the parallels um, that exist and where th these ideas contradict the Christian message. Are these, these methods of, of spirituality, uh, because there's perceived problems, there's real problems in the church, in society, and therefore they feel like the things that we've done in the past just aren't sufficient anymore. So this is going to be, this is the late great thing that, that you do. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is the new, it's the new shiny toy in a way. And um, this is seen as uh, an effort by some. I'm, I'm going to say that those who are very uh, well-meaning, um, this is kind of a, an offensive term to some, but I mean, I'm not the one that came up with this phrase, but those who might be even useful idiots, I'll put it that way. Um, in other words, they're going along with a Marxist revolution, but they don't realize exactly the implications and where it's leading. I think the hook that draws them in oftentimes is there are actual injustices. Uh, there have been in the past. There are things, and, and that's any culture, any, any time in human history, there's always going to be things that could be corrected. That's as Christians, we understand we're not in perfection yet. We, Christ is not reigning um, physically on, on the earth right now. So, um, of course, there's going to be things. And so the solution given is uh, this neo-Marxist solution. And, and so we buy that because we think it'll cure. But it, it's snake oil salesmanship. It's, it won't cure. It'll actually exacerbate the problem. It makes it worse. It creates new problems. And uh, before long, we're in a position that is uh, much more unjust than it was, you know, previously. And so that's what I've been trying to point out to people is that um, these solutions 
don't work. Oftentimes the problems that are nitpicked at or uh, can, can be overblown or sometimes they don't even exist. Sometimes they do. We have to wade through that and figure out, is this a legitimate uh, concern or not? Um, but oftentimes the, those who are bringing up these concerns are not coming with those from a Christian worldview when they're doing that. They're coming from um, an idea that perfection is possible in this world. We can have equity, inclusion, and diversity, and they're egalitarians. Um, so, so anything to move the revolution towards their egalitarian goal is, is fine by any means necessary. Why is and, egalitarianism? Uh, so, why is egalitarianism significant in that point? There's really three components of social justice, in my opinion. Right. So you have I mean, there's a lot more, obviously, but the three basic ones. If we were to boil it all down, it's egalitarianism, mm -hmm. and it's been influenced over the past 200 years by Marxism and postmodernism, and that's given us the critical theories today. So egalitarianism. I like to go back to um, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and the French Revolution, and um, he had this idea that we could get to a state of nature if only we were able to throw off the constraints of society. We're all enslaved, um, and it's not really our fault because we're actually born free. So it's society that's the problem. And so there's all these institutions in society that are, that are keeping man back, enslaving man, and those institutions over time, um, different institutions have been targeted. Um, so I'll give you one example here, like the institution of marriage itself. Some social justice warriors think um, that's an oppressive institution because you have men fulfilling a certain role and women fulfilling a certain role. Well, that's actually biblically uh, something that we, we see in scripture. This is not only endorsed, but it's actually a creation. Um, it's weaved into the fabric of creation and the design that God's put here. So um, when we start saying that that's oppressive, we need to be constructed. Well, of course, there's abuse in marriage. Of course, there's battered wives. Of course, there's problems if we look at every marriage. But ripping it down, taking it apart, saying that we need to re-envision marriage in a more equitable way where women have um, an equal role to men in the, in the sense that uh, their responsibilities are the same. Uh, they have an equal say, an equal responsibility. Well, now you're taking them away from the protection that God's actually given them. And those mediating structures aren't able to defend women um, against the abuses of men because there are differences. They're weaved into the creation, created order. So we don't recognize those differences uh, because we want in our imaginations to have uh, egalitarian utopia. We're going to run up against problems. Yeah, I think uh, one, of the, one of the key things here is that one of the reasons we don't recognize the differences is because we've I mean, either we've engineered or, or technology uh, has evolved uh, to the point where the differences aren't as obvious or aren't as necessary as they were, say, 70 years ago or 80 years ago in the sense that, you know, prior to very cheap and, and, and efficient contraception, uh, you know, what the, the life of the average woman would be was almost kind to a large extent predetermined. There would be motherhood. Uh, which would mean there'd be periods where she would not be able to support herself. She'd need to be supported by someone else, which, you know, we would typically call her husband. Uh, and that was a kind of uh, social gender difference grounded in human nature. And, but with the rise of technology, uh, sort, of, sort of particular sort of contraceptive technologies, and I'd actually say with the shifting of the economy after World War II, uh, in connection with uh, the rise of contraceptive technology in the early 60s, not only do you have women who don't necessarily have to start seeing themselves in terms of mothers, but you have women who are therefore able to pursue the same kinds of careers that men have pursued. 
and so the sort of the blurring of the of the gender differences uh, is also to a large extent because of uh, technological changes that we've sort of found ourselves and economic changes that we found ourselves caught up in but we haven't really seriously sort of anchored our responses to those changes in a in a in a biblical worldview of what it is to be a male what it is to be a female our obligations towards one another and consequently we're sort of we're sort of now in this mess where there are some people seriously asking whether male and female are really sort of objective terms or whether they're just purely social constructs and then you get to the very strange and detrimental transgender movement so all of this sort of mess that we're in is is not just a result of of sloppy thinking which it is and and i, I would say sort of departing from a biblical narrative of of human beings and the universe actually being created with a nature uh, by an intentional god but also just failing to understand technological ec economic changes through a biblical lens and it's just showing how dangerous that, ha that that is in terms of the way things are turning out in terms of just the animosity between the sexes that's emerging particularly probably in the middle classes and and also uh the sort of gender identity crises emerging now all over the world yeah well, we say in history it's usually not one cause that creates a situation there's multiple streams coming together to create a, a scenario so you're yeah you're absolutely right um and as technology increases um you know now that there's technology that uh pretends at least to be able to change genders to uh you know take different parts of the body and, and put them in various areas i won't get graphic uh, we, we now think that, you know, gender is this, uh, it's, it's a, a form of slavery if you can't break out of the gender box that you were born into. Uh, so that's egalitarian thinking. Um, the, the idea that civilizations are all equal, uh, that, you know, there's no real differences between um, someone in, in, in a pagan civilization and a Christian civilization. Well, Christians traditionally for thousands of years rejected that idea that there are some civilizations were more advanced because of uh, not, not just technology, what, that really wasn't the issue, it was what the effect that the Bible had had in their society. Um, that was what civilization was. Right. So we're, we're getting away from all of those things now. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why we don't eat our neighbor is because of the gospel, right? So there is, a, right. There is a Christian way to, do, to cook, <laughs> and one of those would be not to eat your neighbor. Uh, in social media land, there, I've noticed a rise of ministers and even professors who uh, would, would look at your ministry and some of the work that you have been doing now over the past number of years and say, you're a chicken little. There is that you're, you're, you're not, um, you're attacking something that doesn't exist. And in fact, all the leading experts uh, affirm this and what you're attacking doesn't exist and isn't even helpful to the problems that we're facing in society. Yeah, well, you know, thankfully, uh, more people have been coming out since I, I started critiquing this more probably about a year and a half ago. And I was, uh, because I was at an evangelical seminary and I watched this, this takeover happen right before my eyes. I couldn't believe it. I, you know, stories about that. Um, I, I did go, I, I tried as best to my you know, in my opinion, to the best of my ability to go through what would be considered the proper channels and talk to multiple professors. And what I, what I figured out was that 
um, that characterization that all the experts know nothing's really happening. Well, that's just not true. Um, there are actually a lot. And I, I think at one point, and it still might be the case, it was the majority of professors, even at the institution I went to, who were concerned, who thought, I don't agree with this. But I'll tell you what one professor told me as he sh we shut the door to the back of his office. He goes, John, keep your head down. Don't say anything. If I were to oppose this, I would lose my job. I'd be fired. Uh, there's a lot of fear right now with uh, conservatives and these institutions um, because, you know, they're, that's all they've ever done. If they lose that job, then, you know, what are they going to do? How are they going to feed their family? So um, that's what inspired me to start talking about this to begin with because I thought, well, I can sustain myself. I have my own job, that, my own business. Um, I think people need to know what's happening and what they're getting into when they're going to seminary today. So, um, I, so I don't accept the premise of that, that idea that ex, the, all the experts agree nothing's happening. I think, um, though, over the past, I don't know, six months, really since the riots really started up, I think more Christians have been coming out and realizing, okay, hold on, something is going on wrong. Something is off. Uh, I saw just this morning there was a statement made. Um, it was a liberal news outlet. I'm, I'm blanking on the, the particular publication, but it was thanking certain evangelical leaders for their anti-Trump uh, statements. Um, so even the secular world now is realizing and, and noticing and actually with glee and congratulating evangelical leaders who um, have taken hard stands uh, against President Trump uh, in this election. And, and so... I feel like I'm in good company. I think there's a lot of people that are starting to see it. In terms of the, the, the dangers of this movement, are, are you seeing that there is a pretty big impact um, on denominations? Or, or would you say that this is more, it's outskirts right now, but it is coming down the pike? I, I do believe that this is at different stages. Uh, some denominations are farther along than others. Uh, some churches are farther along than others. We're, we're at a lot of different places. I do think, um, this is just my personal opinion, I do think some denominations have gone past the point of no return at this point. Really? Let's be clear. Uh, absolutely. Because uh, there's undermined Christian exception of justice. But oftentimes, the way it is sold to Christians, almost every time, is that this is part of the gospel. This is a gospel issue, uh, gospel above all, just gospel. Um, you need to be part of this because this is an outworking of the gospel somehow. It's part of the gospel. Well, when Christians hear that, they think, well, the gospel is kind of like, that's the fundamental message I'm supposed to proclaim. That's the Great Commission. So, well, of course, I guess I have to get on board. So it's a way of manipulating Christians into these uh, political movements. But when you add something to the gospel, uh, it doesn't matter what it is. You don't have the gospel anymore. When you add works to grace, that's what they're doing. Social justice is works. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, it's something you have to do. And so I, I see that as a direct threat to the gospel, no different than the Galatian heresy. Um, I see elements of Marcionism. I think uh, the throwing out of um, the law uh, to inform our justice. I mean, I think that's very dangerous as well. I mean, the law is a reflection of the character and nature of God. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot of other things. I think one of the main things, though, is the postmodern bent, the, the standpoint epistemology, this idea that if you're from a certain social group, you have either a, um, a, a greater or lesser kind of ability to understand and communicate truth. Uh, that is so damaging to the objectivity 
that undergirds our hermeneutics. So if we approach the Bible, um, I can approach it in the United States, in Virginia, where I am. You can approach it in Australia. You can approach it no matter where you are, who you are. We have tools to get back to the authorial intent. What did the author mean? What was his original audience? Um, unfortunately, with standpoint epistemology and the way hermeneutics are being taught now because of the social justice movement, you have to now realize your lens that you have, you know, whatever it is, a white privilege lens, uh, your whatever social context you're in, you're a male, so you need to check your privilege. And, and then you need to go seek out a perspective from some minority or oppressed social group. And so, you know, a womanist perspective, for instance, is going to help you really understand what Romans really means. And that's just antithetical to the idea of objective truth. You can't have truth uh, if, if it's something that's up to uh, group opinion, if it's, if it's something that isn't ascertainable uh, to, to some and not to others. So uh, I'm concerned about that aspect as well. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head, John. I think one of the things that reveals sort of wokeism as very much a postmodern movement, and, and I agree with you with um, its sort of intellectual heritage going back to Marxism, and then you also alluded earlier to the French Revolution, is, is basically, the, 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 they use the word justice, but what they really mean is power. Um, and when you, and, and the best way to gain sort of power over other people is basically to suggest that all their thoughts are necessarily wrong. All their instincts are necessarily wrong. And for them to be able to think a right thought, they need basically to submit to the knowledge and experience of, of another group of people. Um, and certainly when you read a lot of the woke and social justice literature, that's pretty much what it's about, that there's a white epistemology or there's, there's an oppressor epistemology and there's a and there's sort of an oppressed epistemology sort of way of knowing and the oppressor can't possibly basically the oppressor has an a totally skewed understanding of reality uh, an understanding totally uh, geared and skewed towards their own privilege and to be able to escape that they essentially need to submit their minds fully to uh, the oppressed group. And you get this very, very clearly in you know, Robin D'Angelo's white fragility. And so if you wanted to define what white fragility is for Robin D'Angelo, it's essentially any white person disagreeing with the proposition that they are a racist. If you disagree with that, if you question it, that's, that's literally what she means by white fragility. And she also says towards the end of the book that basically white people can't trust their own thoughts and and, and they have absolutely no right to question accusations of racism by people of color. And so by the time you get to the end of the book, you're in this very, very troubling situation where a white person has absolutely no right to question or disagree with anyone who calls them a racist, which when you think about it, places a tremendous amount of power in the hands of uh, people of color and African-Americans. Uh, sort of an absolute power in their hands. And, you know, as Lord Acton said, power tends to corrupt, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And uh, that's precisely where social justice, uh, woke, where, the, where the woke social justice movement is, going, is, is really leading. It's basically leading to a sort of a, a bestowal of, of, of a kind of ultimate, um, uh, unlimited sort of epistemological sort of knowledge power on... Uh, people of color 
which will inevitably be abused. Why? Because they're no more they're no more or less sinful than anyone else. And as you said earlier, John, I think your your summary of how uh, social justice has become a form of modern spirituality, I think it was beautiful and, and spot on. Uh, but any kind of movement that refuses to acknowledge that we're all equally sinful is a movement that is destined uh, for corruption and ultimately for tyranny. Uh, because you can't question people who don't see themselves as in any way in the wrong or is it in any way epistemologically, uh, meant, um, noetically, use all the theoretical terms you want, but corrupted. That's right. Uh, that was excellent. Absolutely excellent. I, I could not have said that better myself at all. And, and I noticed you used the word uh, knowledge power. So uh, you're, you know, I think you're referencing Foucault there. And Foucault is, uh, I mean, if I had to you know, say, oh, who's the main thinker behind today's social justice movement? I would say, well, maybe Kimberly, you know, Williams Crenshaw, but actually not Foucault. I, yeah, I really the I see, yeah, the way I see it is that there are kind of two social justice movements. There's the one that's preoccupied with race, and then there's the other one that's preoccupied with the body. And for me, the one that's preoccupied with race really mimics the rhetoric of, of good old-fashioned Marxism a lot. Um, and so for that one, I tend to, to, to look at sort of the um, sort, of, sort of historically sort of Marxist in, inflections and influences in, in um, uh, sort of black liberation speech in the 1960s and 70s. Um, but, but, but to totally support your point, when I think of sort of the, the wokeism of the body, so about sexuality, gender, transgenderism, straight out of the, book, the books of Foucault, like it, it's really just a sort of the, the, the philosophy of Foucault, who basically believed that any notions of, of what, what health is, what sanity is, are all really just attempts of people to enslave others to their own way of thinking and living. Um, it, it's really a sort of a popularization and institutionalization of the ideas of Foucault. A name that we don't, use, we, we don't sort of talk about much anymore, but he's really behind all sort of wokeism when it comes to sexuality in the body well, i don't know if it's like this in australia but in the united states and especially in the christian context that i've been running in i hear uh the word there's two words buzzwords spaces and bodies constantly which when i hear that i go back to foucault maybe derrida yeah. but uh you hear a lot and this is in relation to to um to race like uh for instance i'm, I'm gonna say a name but uh beth moore thought it was very important not too long ago she made, put out a tweet that we realize that Jesus was a brown body on the cross. And you hear that kind of language all the time. And it, it, it was probably two or three years ago I started hearing it at seminary uh, with just in a lot of the literature that was being put out in blogs there in the chapel speakers. And they would use bodies and we got to get out of a white space. And I'm like, what is this? And I, and I read Foucault and I said, oh, <laughs> that's what that is. Um, yeah. So it, it's they're all kind of merging now. It's like the sum of all fears, like Marxism, postmodernism have, have really just, they've had a child together and we're dealing with that child right now. Mm, well, well put. And, uh, you know, back to sort of the question of spirituality, I don't, it's funny, um, it, you know, in the 19th century, when intellectuals were losing their Christianity, I mean, it began a little bit earlier than that, but what a, a lot of them started latching onto was the ideology that seemed closest to Christianity in some ways. And of course, that was Marxism. And you sort of alluded to this earlier, John. 
in terms of sort of wokeism, sort of mimicking Christianity in, 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 in many ways. But, you know, Marxism was all about sort of the, the, sort of the loss of, of innocence and then, you know, with the introduction of private property. And so you sort of have the fall, then you have this history of struggle and pain, which you sort of have in the Bible as well. Uh, but Marxism says, you know, but, but fear not a Messiah is coming, you know, the working class and, and, and the Messiah will institute a day of judgment, the revolution. And after the day of judgment, you know, there'll be sort of consummation and communion, you know, communism. And you can understand why in the 19th century, intellectuals who were losing their faith in historic Christianity kind of like they're on the rebound they sort of grabbed the next the next thing that was closest to what they knew and that and that was marxism and it's interesting that in the 20th century when basically intellectuals had lost their faith to a large extent but the people the people hadn't the people were still very religious in the 20th century but now um a religious belief well at least traditional christian religious belief in, is in decline and it, it's interesting that at the popular level now that religious Christian belief is in decline, wokeism is ascending. And again, it's kind of the same thing. They're latching onto something that kind of reminds them of something that they felt comfortable with once upon a time, but isn't quite the same thing. It's interesting to think that, you know, you know Pew Forum in 2019 said that, and I was quite shocked at this, that only 65% of Americans actually identify as Christian. Uh, I think that's about, and they said also about, I'm just looking at some stats here, 49% of millennials say that they are Christian, 40% of millennials say that they have no religion. Uh, interestingly, only uh, about uh, 5% of America, 4% of Americans claim to be atheists. So atheism is still a, 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 in the vast minority, but it's interesting that as religion is, as, as sort of traditional Christian belief and practice is declining in, in some ways quite rapidly, particularly among younger people. Yeah, you know, as, as Paul says in, in, in Romans, you know, when you sort of cast off belief in the true God, it's not like you suddenly become disinterested in religion. No, you're still interested in something and you latch onto something else. And that's precisely what's happened. Uh, hence, the, the decline of traditional Christian belief and the rise of wokeism. And so wokeism really is, it, it is kind of a surrogate Christianity. And, and, and funnily enough, and you know, as a historian of religion, it in many ways mimics American Calvinistic evangelicalism. Um, it, it sort of perverts it with its emphasis on basically everyone except for us is sort of intellectually corrupted. Um, you can't trust your, you can't trust your own judgments and things like, and then sort of the, the things that you were talking about earlier. But there are other things as well, other elements of pagan spirituality that we might touch on later. Yeah, no, you're, you're 100% right. Very, very well articulated there. Uh, I, and I, I, I couldn't say it better. No, it was just really good. <laughs> well, when you think, I mean, Peter Jones in our last, uh, one of our earlier podcasts pointed out that he thinks the Black Lives Matter movement and wokeism is now sort of heading in that direction of paganism, which is something you mentioned earlier, John. You said yeah. sort of entering into a pagan movement. It's kind of like the reverse of what happened uh, in the in the sort of first to fourth century in in, in Rome. Um, but uh, have you sort of seen any of sort of the pagan ceremonies involved in Black Lives Matter? Um, uh, yeah. So. It, during, I mean, we're approaching uh, Halloween. Actually, I to, think today is Halloween that we're recording this. Um, so I, I, I am seeing it. Funny enough, I'll just one quick example from my neighborhood. There was a uh, a neighbor who had decked out 
her lawn with Black Lives Matter stuff. I mean, she was the one that you could just point to. That's that's the woke person on the street. Same person who's decked out her lawn with the Halloween and the ghoulish stuff, you know? I don't know. I mean, I haven't run like a scientific study or anything, but um, there's certainly uh, a parallel between feminism and witchcraft. We, we know this. This is pretty well documented. I think the Black Lives Matter stuff is, is kind of new. So are we, you know, we need some time to evaluate this, but I would not be shocked at all knowing what the originators of Black Lives Matter are involved when, uh, they, I mean, they're involved in these, what they call African spiritual occultic yeah. things. Say, say her name, say his name is, is a way of channeling victims of police brutality. Uh, so, I, I mean, now the, the temptation here, though, this is good to point out, it is an excellent point. The church, uh, Christian institutions, etc. the temptation for them is to try to capture the woke movement for themselves somehow and say, we're part of this too. Uh, if you want to be really woke or truly radical, I hear that language every now and then, you know, the true radical is Jesus. The one that really was the original social justice warrior is Jesus. So it's attracting this woke constituency. This is the thing that I think needs to be emphasized to try to stop this and say, look where they're going. This is totally antithetical. Uh, this is demon worship is what we're, we're looking at. We're looking at getting involved with uh, demonic entities and channeling. Um, now, I don't know if we've progressed far enough yet to, to really uncover that and expose it, but, but it's starting. And I think you're right. I think we're going to see that trajectory more and more. Oh, oh thank I mean, you. I, yeah. Sorry, Josh. Go. Oh, just w when John, you mentioned about Jesus, the real radical, it, it took me back to the early 2000s when I first went into the ministry that's when all the church was churches like the ooze were, were going um, emergent. And that was, that was kind of yeah. a mantra was, was, was they were wanting to get rid of the uh, modernity within their churches um, uh, and the conservative movements and say, Oh yeah, Jesus is the real subversive here. And he's, we need to throw off old liturgy. We need to throw off old doctrines. Uh, you know, the Rob Bell came, you know, the, uh, the velvet uh, blue like uh, blue like jazz and 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 the velvet Elvis Donald Miller yeah. yeah 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 so all those came in and it was like Jesus is subversive and he wants to undo all this this bondage of Protestant doctrinal thinking we need to move beyond it and now here the progressives have just found a brand new thing to evolve into it's almost like a chameleon they just they just change with the culture as it goes but it's still it's still a lie. Um, it still usurps and, and is, is an antinomian kind of thing. It, it, it does away with the law of God. It's, it's really the emergent movement politicized. That's what we're dealing with. So the emergent movement wasn't able to capitalize and keep people because it was an end really have anything that they stood for. This movement has something they stand for. That's why it's got staying power. It's well-funded uh, because there are political, um, interest behind it and they would love to see the evangelical vote go left so I, this is a whole different animal but it's so similar mm. it, it, it's very similar to the emergent church in my thinking at least this is this sort of goes back to the term that uh, truth exchange is, is is using as the sort of the idea of the great awakening which of course is a play on words of the great awakening of the um sort of mid uh mid and late mid 18th century and then sort of repeated in the second great awakening but the reason the reason we sort of thought that was an appropriate term is because, you know, A, uh, we believe that, and as do you, John, that wokeism really is a kind of religion uh, with all its rituals and, 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 a, and a very dogmatic religion at that. 
but secondly, um, it, it's kind of like it's sort of exploded onto the scene and just taken the popular mind so quickly in, in a way that I think very few people could have predicted. Um, but, but also the, the difference between the Great Awakening, the evangelical revivals of the 18th century and, and the Great Awakening is that the evangelical revivals uh, was something that, that sort of happened, that, that, that it was kind of a religious movement, a sort of a Christian movement that went on to have a subsequent effect on wider society and, and, and evangelical revivals went on to, in a sense, change wider society, form institutions, change the way people thought about justice and slavery and all sorts of things. So it was kind of something that, it was kind of an instance of the church and, and, and its message radiating out and changing society having a sort of an effect in the secular world, the Great Awakening is in a sense the exact opposite. It's something that's happening out there sort of in what we might call the secular world, if you believe that there is such a thing. And, and I suppose in some ways there isn't. But it's something that's sort of happening outside of the church, but it's actually changing the church. It's sort of doing the very reverse. And this is something that we've got to be very, very careful about, um, as you've sort of been suggesting, and, and just be, be able to know that you know, historically, Christians have been able to say compelling things about injustice and, and racism and all sorts of other modes of oppression without having to rely on quasi-Marxist postmodern theory, which at the end of the day is only going to cause division in the church in the same way that it's causing division in society at the moment. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Uh, in fact, the the first people to use the term Great Awakening, I know you're saying Awakening, but to ascribe that to the social justice movement uh, were people like Jim Wallace and Ron Sider uh, back in the early 1970s. And they actually thought that what they were doing was creating a third Great Awakening. And they, interestingly enough, and I mean, I've traced some of this out in my book, Social Justice Goes to Church, but they, um, I think they, they became Marxist first, really. And then they were looking for historic Christian examples to justify their Marxism. And so one of those was they went to the Second Great Awakening and they said, hey, look at all these Christians who uh, were not only for immediate abolition, uh, but they were also for women's rights. Um, and, and of course, that that got into um, even prohibitionism and those kinds of things. Of course, they selectively picked the issues that they cared about. But they said, we're like them. And they did not much about, I really couldn't find anything about the first great awakening. Cause it's really in the first great awakening that you find the, uh, the basis for um, the, not only the American revolution as we call it, but the, the undoing of slavery years later, because there was a sense in which in the first great awakening that everyone is equal in the sight of God, in the sense of uh, they are equally in need of a savior. They were equally sinful. Um, and they did not try to subvert biblical teaching on slavery, but they, it did, they did teach about how, hey, look, I, I remember there's a passage, I think it was uh, from George Whitfield, where he's basically ringing these slave masters, you know, through, just, just throwing everything at them, telling them, you have a responsibility. These, are, these aren't just your laborers. These are people who are going to stand before God on judgment day. What are you doing to instruct them spiritually? Well, that sounds like a duh thing to us now, but at the time, this was, this was monumental. This, this was the kind of thing that led eventually to, um, to slavery being you know, ended, the slave trade ending first. 
And um, the woke guys, the social justice guys, they don't go back to the first great awakening as much. They try to justify what they're doing based on the second great awakening. But even, even that, not as much as just them being smart, them being so wise, wiser than their parents, wiser than their grandparents. They're going to usher in what Christianity was really meant to do that it failed to do for 2000 years. That's the height of arrogance. That's the height of arrogance. You're not going to be able to do that. And if you think you can do that, you're probably going to mess it up worse than it would have been if you hadn't done anything. So that's my opinion there, but that's, that's what I'm seeing at least. Abraham Kuyper famously said, when principles that run against your deepest convictions begin to win the day, then battle is your calling and peace has become sin. You must at the price of dearest peace, lay your convictions bare before your friend and enemy and with all the fire of your faith. I think that it's clear that we are in a time where we cannot just say that, oh, let's have peace, peace, peace. How can there be peace? Um, what is the way forward? So obviously what, what Christ has already told us, so sharing the gospel, uh, making disciples, loving, and this is going to sound a little different, but I think loving uh, tangibles. In other words, the things that we can see around us, the things that a uh, person that we sit into on who is maybe part of a different social group than we are, um, that's someone who's part of the body of Christ. I think just going to church and loving things, loving people, instead of being in love with abstract ideas like equality and, and thinking we can achieve this somehow in this life, but instead looking at the needs of your actual neighbor and trying to meet those needs. That is the, that's the Christian, I mean, this used to be called charity, but that's the Christian substitute for social justice. Instead of handing off everything to this all powerful centralized authority, us all equal and happy, Instead, how about we become the ones who go out and it's, it's our responsibility to, to make sure that not only are people fed and clothed as neighbors, but also that we're sharing the true uh, gospel with them. That's, that's really what they truly need. Um, so it, it, it is the gospel as it always is. Uh, I, and one other thing I would mention is that I, I hear a lot of saying, I don't understand this woke stuff. Well, we're going to have to work to understand it. If you were living in Utah and you were a Christian, you'd have to understand Mormonism to be able to evangelize Mormons. So I think understanding um, social justice is imperative. You need to understand where the people around you are coming from to be able to understand what's the contradiction between their belief and the gospel and to be able to argue for that. So the gospel, apologetics, ah, nothing earth shattering there, just basic Christianity. Yeah, no, I think you've, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think uh, the, all these movements, look, uh, sort of wokeism. I mean, at its worst, it's 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 just a bunch of sort of angry, frustrated people uh, taking out uh, their rage on anything that they can take it out on. Uh, whether they're uh, and and perhaps in some respects, for some of these people, their anger and frustration isn't particularly justified. I notice that a lot of them seem to come from relatively comfortable middle class backgrounds college scholarships, very articulate people, actually. When you see yeah. some of these protesters interviewed, they're using terms that you would not hear uh, on the streets normally. You'd hear them in university classrooms. And so you can only assume that these people have probably right. come from something of a middle-class background, or if they weren't middle-class, they've obviously received a fairly good education. But uh, so at worst, you know, some of these 
some 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 people involved in this may just may be in bad faith and that they're really just making trouble. Uh, but but at best, you know, uh, some of this, there are those who are genuinely seeking uh, some form of what they they might call justice, uh, maybe a sort of a form of uh, some kind of peace. And uh, in that respect, for those people, uh, a great way forward is just to make sure that we are in fact uh, exemplifying sort of harmonious and righteous relationships in our own lives as individuals uh, and also in our own uh, institutions, in our churches, that, that our churches, our lives as individuals, and I would also say our families, uh, become the very embodiment of righteousness or at least as righteous as, as, as they can get uh, this side of eternity. And that will, you know, attract those who are genuinely seeking those things. Now, some will be repelled by it, but that's always going to be the case. But in a sense, to sort of outrighteous the, the righteousness, if you like, of, of, of social justice through actually living in accordance with what the Bible would call the fruits of the spirit. Again, sort of, I mean, the Bible doesn't really have a term for sort of spirituality, uh, because spirituality is this, it's, it's an abstraction. And you were talking earlier, John, about how very often social justice movements sort of focus more on abstractions um, than on anything sort of- Real positive. needs, real people. Yeah, that's right. It's like, I love humankind. It's just, I don't love any particular human being all that much. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, you know, when you look at the Bible, I mean, it, it doesn't talk about spirituality. It talks about the spirit, the spirit as a person, the spirit as a person who dwells in us. And that leads to all sorts of fruits, but it also leads to a regard for sort of objective truth as well. And all of these things are meant to change our lives as individuals and to, and to inform our institutions as churches so that when people see us, they say, wow, like what makes that person the way they are? What makes that institution the way it is? Why is it that when I walk into this church, it's like when I walk anywhere else, people ignore me. People think I'm crazy. People uh, want nothing to do with me. But when I come in here, people take an interest in me. It's like I exist. And at that moment, you, 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 that, that's when you get to say, well, let me tell you about this guy, Jesus, how he changed my life, how he, how he animates this, the people that you're around right now, and how he can change your life as well. And, and when you look at the Bible and, and what it, when it talks about sort of the spirit, you know, the spirit is a person. The spirit is God. So, you know, we go to you know, Galatians 5.22. It talks about not sort of spirituality in the abstract, but, but how we change when we have the spirit of God in us. You know, Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith. Uh, you know, the fruit of the spirit isn't just crying out for justice and that's that. It's actual tangible, noticeable uh, virtues that we demonstrate to others. And when you're not demonstrating them, people know it. Romans chapter 8, verse 6, you know, for to be carnally or fleshly minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Uh, a couple of verses earlier, that the righteous, righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So Christians, uh, you know, sort of a Christian understanding of spirituality is, is heavily anchored again to righteousness and the fruits of the spirit. And of course, righteousness in the New Testament is anchored to Christ. Uh, the gospel of righteousness is really ultimately the gospel of Christ. Uh, John, last, last verse, John chapter 14, verse 17, uh, 
again, not spirituality in the abstract, but the spirit, capital S, the spirit of truth, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and shall be with you. There, there can be no conception of proper spirituality which doesn't itself anchor, anchor itself in the truth, the truth of the gospel of Christ, which then has its outworking with the fruits of the spirit. And anything that doesn't have that, doesn't matter how many times it uses the word justice or reconciliation or inclusivity, uh, it's a fake gospel, it's a fake spirituality. Yeah, excellent. Real quick story, uh, just to, to piggyback off that. I actually went out and visited with some protesters uh, who were very angry. Um, and I just, I, ju I just talked to them uh, as person to person. Uh, and hey, you know, why are you here? What, why are you angry? Um, I shared with them, I was there hours. And um, I eventually had all of them surrounding me, asking me questions. What I came to find out, making this long story very short, is that so many people today have an identity crisis and it, it, there's so many things that contribute to it. Moving around is one of them, but having a broken family is a significant part of that. Having no spiritual uh, sense when they were uh, growing up, um, they're, they're just look, they're looking for a place to belong. And the social justice movement acts as a place to belong. It gives you purpose. Uh, it, it's very tempting for people to say, I'm going to find my identity in this. And it gives me a moral superiority on top of it. So they, they're attracted to it for those reasons. But um, they had never met someone like me. I could just tell. They, 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 they didn't think that political conservatives, let alone a Christian, actually existed. Uh, if they did, they were, it, was, it was an abstract thing. It was those evil people out there. But to actually have one right in front of them to see that I wasn't foaming at the mouth, I wasn't hurling insensitive slurs at them. I was just actually trying to love them. Uh, I, th I did feel like I had the truth. I didn't compromise that. But, um, but I was genuinely listening to what they had to say and then sharing what it, I believe the Bible said. And it was an excellent time. I just, and I remember thinking um, as I was there, why aren't there more Christians here? Mm -hmm. why, why can't we, why, why church? And they weren't even new. Here's a hymn book. Why don't you sing with us? They didn't want to sing with that church. So um, a countercultural message from true, biblical, sound, brave, gospel-oriented Christians, I think, can go a long way. We just got to be brave enough to go and do it. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, you, yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, you, you guys probably remember that very early on uh, when the riots started, when was it? Was it late May or... I can't remember, but very early on, yeah, uh, yeah, very early on, some of the most sort of touching, poignant photographs that were taken were actually of people on their knees praying together. And in the midst of the carnage, in the midst of the division, uh, there were still pockets of Christians, black and white, together praying. And, and, that, and there's a sense in which the only thing that was bringing people together, and, and probably at that point a minority of people, was, uh, was prayer. And, and that really demonstrated that if anything is going to work to heal these divisions, it's going to be, it's going to be Christ. It's going to be Jesus. Um, and that, at the end of the day, uh, is the answer. Working that out can be very complicated. But at mm -hmm. the end of the day, uh, tangibly speaking, that is what will uh, bring people together and heal divisions. Uh, it was doing it at certain moments very early on. 
and let's see uh, let's see it happen again and let's let's be a part of that movement i'm gonna amen we need to um wrap up this podcast and i'll, I'll just end it with um and you guys can share a comment or thought on it but uh the common attributed augustine's statement which is in essentials unity in doubtful matters liberty in all things charity i really appreciate both of you gentlemen talking about uh well john you sharing your story about going out there that was charity being lit walked out lived out and then with Stephen about prayer uh an essential and in this time of disunity i would have to say is the gospel the lordship of jesus christ over all things agreed yeah absolutely for yes issues of liberty on doubtful issues is this more of um Stephen, kind of what you were alluding to about sometimes working out various problems in, in different situations is that more where yeah. that yeah whether it's sort of i mean if you think about the ends of of wokeism which is kind of meant to be justice well you know we all agree that justice is right and proper it's something that animate that sort of that was meant to animate uh the, the hebrews the israelites uh, the question is, you know, what do we mean by justice and, and what is the best way to pursue it? And so, in a sense, the, the ideal of justice is a, is a non-negotiable. You can't be a Christian and not long for, for justice. Uh, the question is, you know, what do you mean by justice? And what, what sort of is informing your understanding of justice? Is it um, the Bible and the brute facts of human nature or is it ideology? And that would be something uh that needs to be sort of understood and worked out properly so that's sort of where things become a little bit complex Stephen, john thank you for being on the podcast today we look forward to doing more things with you in the future thank you very much sounds good looking forward to it this concludes our episode of the truth exchange podcast unique program where we have conversations about worldview all through the lens of oneism and twoism be sure to drop us a line let us know how you think we're doing or let us know about anything that you would like to see us address in upcoming episodes. Remember, this podcast is only made possible from friends like you.